Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your Wild Grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. We received an overwhelming amount of discussion from listeners about sexual harassment and assault. We have learned a lot and continue the conversation in today's episode. This is Sarah from the left and Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsu Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. Welcome to another episode of Pantsuit Politics. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. And thank you for all our support on Patreon. We are having so much fun. I'm having a lot of fun sharing my new house uh, fixer upper style Paducah edition journey over on Patreon. And we have a new executive producer. Thank you so much, George, for supporting our show. We are so excited to have you. And if you are not a Patreon supporter or that's not your preferred way to support Pantsuit Politics right now, or even if you are, you can also rate us on the Apple Podcast player, leave us a review. Subscribing to the show and sharing helps keep us in those top-ranked charts so that more people can find Pantsuit Politics, and we really appreciate all of your support. So today we're going to review the week's news, including what's happening in Niger with the legislation regarding health care and the budget along with that. And then we'll dive back into our ongoing discussion of gender-based violence and harassment. And as always, we'll end with what's on our minds outside of politics. I want to talk about Niger a little bit because I feel that the way this story has evolved really gives short shrift to the enduring issues that are going to come out of this this horrific thing that happened to our service members. So a little bit of background. Niger is a landlocked nation in West Africa. It was a French colony until 1960, and French is its official language. So when you hear that pronunciation of Niger, that is not people trying to be elitist or something. It's a French nation. Um, it's, it's not a French nation now, but it was a French colony, and French is the language there. Niger is bordered by seven nations. And when you hear this list, I think you'll start to understand um, some of the context for what happened. So the seven nations bordering Niger are Libya, Mali, Chad, Burkina Faso, Algeria, Nigeria, and Benin. It is slightly smaller than Alaska, but larger than Texas, just to give you a perspective on size. And 80% of Niger is covered by the Sahara Desert. There are 21 million people who live there, more than New York, fewer than Texas. It is part of the UN and has a very moderate foreign policy. It's friendly with most nations, including a very warm relationship with France. Its economy consists mostly of crops and livestock. It also has some of the world's largest uranium deposits. The United States has been training troops in Niger since the early 2000s to deal with terror, and our presence has recently increased because of extremism on the rise in Mali and Nigeria. 
Some of this is a quid pro quo. We want to put surveillance stations in Niger, and in exchange, we help train their local forces. Um, Some of it has also been described as just sort of textbook mission creep. Mm. We have about 800 troops in Niger now, including special forces. We're helping with surveillance. We've been quietly operating in this part of Africa for a long time. There are, we've provided assistance in battles against the version of Al Qaeda that is in Western Africa and also Boko Haram. If you're a fan of the daily, the New York Times has done a nice job keeping us up on what's happening in Boko, with Boko Haram in Western Africa. This is all being managed by a relatively junior set of staffers because the Trump administration has not yet appointed key positions related to Africa. We don't have a senior director for Africa at the National Security Council, and there is a temporary appointment for the Assistant Secretary of State for Africa Affairs. So as you continue to hear reporters say, why were we there? What was the mission? And the Trump administration gives less than cogent or transparent answers. I think part of that is because they are really getting their minds around what we're doing in West Africa. So on October 4th, a number of U.S. troops were meeting with community leaders near the Mali border. Apparently, they were trying to track down an accomplice of a former member of the Movement for Unity and Jihad in West Africa who traffics in arms and fuel. The community members that they were meeting with really dragged the conversations out, and the troops reportedly stayed in that meeting longer than planned. According to all the intelligence, this should have been a relatively safe drive. They went in unarbored vehicles and had limited weapons with them. When they left this meeting, they were drawn into a fake terror attack and ambushed. So for 30 minutes, they were assaulted Immediately, three U.S. troops were confirmed dead. That's Staff Sergeants Brian Black, Dustin Wright, Jeremiah Johnson. There were two more people injured, and Sergeant LaDavid Johnson was missing. French aircraft was called in for backup and helped evacuate people, and then a private contracting service that the U.S. military uses came in to assist. We still don't know a lot about what happened here. We don't know why Sergeant Johnson was separated from the group, why it took two days to locate his body, which was nearly a mile away from the attack. So we do know that three of the troops killed were Green Berets and that there were about 50 terrorists who used grenades and machine guns in the assault. There is um, suspicion that an offshoot of the Islamic State coordinated this, but that both the Pentagon and the FBI are investigating. What we are coming to understand as more information comes to light, this seems like just a serious intelligence failure. We should have known that this was going to be more dangerous, and we don't. It took two weeks for the Trump administration to publicly discuss the deaths of these troops, and then a PR crisis emerged because the part of the story that you probably have more familiarity with now is that the president made a call to the widow of Sergeant LaDavid Johnson in which he reportedly said some things that the family received as insensitive comments. A congresswoman publicized those comments, and then John Kelly got involved, and Sarah Huckabee Sanders made comments about it that were very incendiary. And Sarah, I'm really interested in your perspective on all of that. I have to say that mine is is a sense of frustration that the president doesn't know how to talk about what's happening in West Africa, and so he picked the fight that he knows how to have, yep, which I is this very personal and hurtful fight with a congresswoman. Yeah, I agree. I think that this what instead of saying, because, again, this comes back to his complete and total inability to ever say there mistakes were made or he did. He made a mistake or he did something wrong. And so in order to deflect from that, he picks a fight um and because nothing is off limits to him, including Gold Star families, as we saw with Khazar Khan's family during the Democratic National Convention, um, he went after this woman who said that the interaction, and I think it, because the congresswoman made a statement, it became even easier to make this political. And I'm not saying she shouldn't have, um, but because it seemed like when I was first following the story that she was just being a witness and saying, no, I heard it. He was rude. Um that he he decided to deflect with this because, you know, this is not an easy thing to talk about. I'm sure he's not well versed on it. And I was telling my husband, you can just hear he's so dangerous with any information you give him. You can tell that, like, he's made it clear he doesn't want 
in-depth, complicated information that doesn't present a clear winner and loser. And so you can hear when he talks his, you can almost hear what the staffers told him. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like you can hear that they gave him, they told him this, or they, they were trying to give him some background and you can hear him say, not everybody knows this, but, or, you know, what people don't understand. And he's, and he's like yielding or wielding, I guess is the word I want, wielding this like little bits of information the staffers are trying to give him to give him better understanding as weapons in the debate. Well, you can't do that if you don't understand the full picture. You're just more dangerous. You're just making things worse. And I feel like that's what happens so often with him. Yeah, I'm not going to I would never have busted on him about that call because here are the things that ring true to me. It rings true to me that this happened. They didn't know how to handle it. He started to get some heat. And so he makes it about the fact of the call to the family. Mm-hmm. and comparing himself to other presidents because that's his favorite thing to do. And it rings true to me that he said to John Kelly, how do you make a call like this? And John mm-hmm. Kelly described an experience that was comforting to him and his family when his son died. What I think is missing for the president is the ability to calibrate that conversation to the yeah. person in front of him. The message that would have comforted John Kelly's family is probably very different than what would have spoken to this woman and what would speak to me if my husband died or, you know, we all receive grief differently. And even the most naturally empathetic people get that wrong sometimes. Yeah. So I wouldn't have I wouldn't have had harsh criticism for him, even if exactly the way the congresswoman described it is accurate. And, and I believe it is. I think she's recounting what she heard. I'm also not going to beat her up for talking about it Mm -mm. because she knows this family. You know, all the reporting that I've seen is that this isn't some like seized upon political moment for her. She actually knows these people. And so I think in incredibly difficult situations, probably the president tried to make a phone call and do it well and didn't. But that's okay. I can give him some grace for that. And probably this congresswoman was doing her best in a difficult moment. But then when the White House decides to use John Kelly to lecture the nation on military service and lecture the nation on what is sacred and what is not sacred, and in doing so tells a completely verifiable falsehood Mm -hmm. about this congresswoman's history And then the press secretary of the United States lectures the media on questioning a member of the military. That's where I think we've gone totally off the rails. And all of that is this enormous sideshow to the fact that we don't know where all of our military members are right now and why they're there. Mm -hmm. And I get that there can't be complete transparency on that, that there is danger in telling us everything every unit is doing. But the fact that John McCain is having to threaten subpoenas to get any information about this, that's the real story here. Yeah. Well, and I here's how I feel. Well, first of all, to Huckabee Sanders' ridiculous statements, being a four-star general doesn't make you a perfect human being. When they like put those on your chest, it doesn't magically transform you into a, hum- into a person that doesn't make any mistakes. So everybody calm down. And I just think, look, here's the reality. In our current political environment, because we as a nation elected Donald Trump, the idea that we will maintain sacred spaces in which our polarized environment will not creep in and poison them is probably unrealistic. And so if this conversation grosses you out and if you are disheartened by the increasing nastiness coming into areas that we all used to feel like were off limits to politics, then I would encourage you to do some soul searching and start to push in some areas where you feel like are ripe for political polarization. Maybe we should all take a breath and and put some grace in those conversations because we're not going to like I just kind of feel like if we are not going to push back in every area we're not going to be able to protect this these sacred spaces either. Like, it's just the heat is getting too much. And so until we decide that we're not going to treat each other like enemies of the state in every area, or at least 
try harder in more normal political areas, then we're not going to be able to keep these other spaces safe from politics. Well, I think that's right and probably a good moment to transition. Although, can I say one more thing about John Kelly? I'm sorry. This has really been eating at me. And I think it's relevant to the conversation we're going to have in our main segment. I was as troubled by John Kelly's way of voicing his worldview in that press conference as anything else, because I heard in it so much nostalgia in a way that I think is the root of sort of Trumpism. You, yeah. Like, I understood after that press conference why John Kelly is part of Donald Trump's team. Mm-hmm. And I was especially troubled, and I understand that I probably have a heightened sensitivity to this right now. By the way, he kept talking about the experience of what happens when we lose a service member as though that service member could not be a woman. Mm. there was so many there were so many references to and then we tell the wife um and just it and i don't think that he intended that and i do want to bring some grace to this i i get that he's talking from his life experience and and i respect and appreciate his life experience i also think when gendered issues are so charged and so prevalent in the national narrative right now It is important. It matters for the chief of staff to be able to calibrate his pronouns. It matters for him to acknowledge that a military spouse might mean something different than it has for most of his career. Mm -hmm. And I was just really I was really sad that more effort isn't being put into communications from the White House. And I guess that's a the understatement of the year Word. and maybe a silly thing to say. But it really troubled me, especially against the backdrop of everything that's happening in the news right now. Well, and I feel like two things I thought when you were saying about John Kelly working for the administration. Also, not only it watching the press conference shouldn't surprise you that he works for the administration. Also, the fact that he works for this administration shouldn't make that the way he spoke at that press conference a surprise. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. they work both ways. And, you know, it's interesting that you said that particularly about his perspective. It's, I was just reading this morning that there's like the percentages of white males working in this administration are up like 20% from the Obama administration like it's it's much less reflective of the united states population overall like just like thousands of mid-level administration employees so i mean that's just a perspective that is strong within this administration again vast understatement but moving on to healthcare. <laughs> well good news there are people trying to work together so patty murray a democrat and lamar alexander a republican have been working for weeks on a deal and they reached one on Woo! how the affordable care act could be stabilized their their agreement would fund the cost sharing reduction payments to insurers that the president's executive order slashed. And the idea here that the reason the government pays that money is to keep deductibles lower for low income people. So they would fund that. It might be too late for that to affect premiums for 2018, but hopefully going forward, it would. Insurers, in response to that executive order, have announced that we should expect about 20% premium increases next year because of that instability caused by the, the government not honoring its commitment. They provide funding for enrollment outreach. The idea is these exchanges are not going to work until more people get on them, so the government needs to spend some money to educate people and get them into the programs. They made it easier for states to obtain waivers for ACA requirements. And there are lots of things states want to do under those requirements, ranging from single-payer systems to cutting way back and allowing more catastrophic plans. And that's another thing that Alexander Murray does. It expands eligibility for catastrophic coverage, where you have a really high out-of-pocket and a low deductible. Right now, only people under 30 can buy those plans, and Alexander Murray says that anyone could buy them. There are 24 co-sponsors of this legislation, 12 Democrats and 12 Republicans. You can't ask for much more than that. And we don't know if it will get a vote because Mitch McConnell says that he is waiting on guidance from President Trump. President Trump has been all over the map in his tweets about this. 
people who have the most optimism about it think that it will get shoved into a year-end package funding the government and lifting the debt ceiling. They don't think that Congress will be able to get this done as a standalone measure. You know what bothers me? What of a long list of things? About <laughs> health care in particular? Um, I am excited about this bipartisan proposal, but when you brought up Mitch McConnell, I'm, I'm, I, I hate to be Debbie Downer after we're trying to feel hopeful about bipartisan compromise because I think it's important. But when Mitch McConnell is like, you know, Donald Trump expects things too quickly, he doesn't understand the legislative process. Perhaps fair. But I think what I I kind of was like walking and then was like, hey, you know what makes me mad about this when he listening to this narrative is you didn't have from January. You've had seven years of complaining about this health care to come up with a legislative idea or compromise. And so this idea that like we didn't have enough time. Well, how do you count the time? Well, no doubt this is a reactive proposal. Yeah, this directly comes from the president's executive order, right? That we have to, we, we now have the president shutting down something that will sabotage the individual markets. So what are we going to do about that? Yeah. I think what's really incoherent about the president's statements on this, I mean, a lot of it is, but something that I think is not receiving enough focus. The president keeps saying that he is not going to quote, bail out insurance companies. If that is his perspective, then why is the Trump administration not proposing a single payer health care system? If that's his genuine belief about what's going on here, not that these private companies offer services for which they should be paid, but that any government payment to help people with premiums on the private marketplace is enriching these companies in a way that is unjust then he should be proposing just a tremendous expansion of Medicaid, I think, to be logically coherent. I think that's fair. Maybe this goes back in the bucket if he just is pulling talking points out of the air. But but I don't understand it's a big what bucket. he means. It's a big bucket. <laughs> you know, when he says he doesn't want to bail out the insurance companies, I don't understand what that means. The people who are going on the exchanges right now, especially who are going on the exchanges with government subsidies, are likely to be large consumers of health care in many cases. And under our system of private insurance, it is it is critical that money goes into insurance to come back out. And yes, insurance companies are going to make profit from that. Well, should we move on to the budget? Yes. Okay. This is another area where I'm struggling with the president's logic. I want to be fair, but I'm really having a hard time. Okay. Senate Republicans passed a budget plan last week that would lower taxes by $1.5 trillion with no corresponding spending offsets. And our Senator Rand Paul voted against it because he's consistent, if nothing else. Although not really, because I'm kind of upset with him before about that executive order to our previous conversation, which would absolutely increase the deficit. And he's just standing up there smiling. But whatever. It's cool. Well, and also that it's an executive order, which expands expands the power of the executive, which is not supposed to be in Rand Paul's bailiwick. But anyway, every Republican other than Rand Paul voted for this plan. It is a non-binding resolution, not a bill that's going to go to President Trump for signature. It will go back to the House from here and move through the reconciliation process. It cannot add more than $1.5 trillion to the deficit over 10 years and cannot increase the deficit in the next decade in order to get through the reconciliation process. Those are kind of the guardrails around it. Well, and they're putting pressure hard, but Freedom Caucus, let's see how consistent you are. Just look, I'm looking at you, boys. Is there any women in the Freedom Caucus? There are, right? I think there are a couple of women in the Freedom Caucus. The The only purpose of this is to kickstart right. tax reform legislation. And here's my problem with that. So Lindsey Graham has said, you know, if you're a Republican who doesn't want to cut taxes, what good are you to anyone? I don't understand when that became the guiding light of the party. I understand wanting to do tax reform. I want to do tax reform. But this isn't tax reform. This is just a tax cut that is going to add to the deficit. When the president is tweeting on almost a daily basis about the strength of our economy. 
What purpose is served by a massive tax cut with no corresponding spending offsets that will increase our deficit? That to me sounds like a recipe for inflation and for possibly future economic turmoil because of the debt increase. Yep. I understand when you have short-term economic crisis, you have to put measures in place to boost the economy. But the president's telling us every day that the economy is doing really well. And this is one of the few things that data does support. Now, it doesn't Mm -hmm. support giving him all the credit for it, but let's just put that to the side. Unemployment is low. Wages are steadily increasing. Like, there are good things happening in our economy. I don't understand what the justification for a tax cut of this size is without doing the work on the other side of the balance sheet. And also, look, you know, I know it's not a simple arithmetic problem. I get that. But like, it's just really hard to read story after story about how we just have to keep handing out billions and billions of dollars in natural disaster. And I don't, I shouldn't have used the term handout. That's not the word, the verb I wanted. How we need billions of dollars in disaster relief side by side with stories about how we need to cut taxes. Sorry. I'm struggling. Well, I think that's right. When you know that we have tremendous obligations necessary to rebuild parts of our country, when we have this story that gives us an indication that perhaps our intelligence resources aren't functioning fully mm-hmm. and our military isn't properly equipped. And the one area that I have a lot of agreement with President Trump on is the need to rebuild our infrastructure in this company, in this country. I think that is the best opportunity to secure additional corporate investment in the United States. Invest in our infrastructure, invest in ourselves and invite other people to do the same. I feel like that would be so much more effective than just kind of blind tax cuts that probably aren't going to move the needle that much Mm-mm. for corporate America anyway. It's just, it's just, you know, if it, I feel like it supports, it, pl- it plays to the narrative that the Republican Party isn't actually interested in governing or doing big things. All they want to do is tear it down. You know what I mean? Like, I just feel like we have big problems. We have big issues. There are things that need to be paid attention to. And I'm just not sure tax reform is at the top of the list. And it's like they've hung that. But now they've hung their hat on this and they think we're going to get slaughtered in 2018 because we can't do this one thing that we all stand for. Well, really, in our current environment and when you look around our country, the thing you really want to hang your hat on is tax reform. I mean, whatever. Well, here's how I see it as someone who has voted as a Republican my entire adult life and who believes that tax and spending reform is important. The way that this is unfolding makes it seem to me that the Republican Party is asking the taxpayers to make a $1.5 trillion donation to the 2018 reelection campaigns of their members of Congress. And it infuriates me. Everybody tweet that. I'm going to put that. That's tweetable. That's tweetable right there. Stop. Say that again, Beth. I think that the Republican Party is asking American taxpayers to make and and our future generations to make a one point five trillion dollar donation to the reelection campaigns for 2018 GOP Congress members. That's how I see this. There is no logical coherence hanging around this. And it infuriates me. Damn, that's good. We're ending on that. That's too good. Conversation over. Let's compliment the other side then. Who do you want to compliment today, Sarah? This is a compliment the other side, former president edition. I would like to compliment George W. Bush. For his recent um, speech um, calling out the increased nationalism being found in the Republican Party. And here's the thing. I liked what he said, and I think that's important. But I also think George Bush is not particularly inclined to do things like this. And I think it probably took a lot for him to do this. Um, so I thought that that I, he deserves some praise for that. Because, I mean, he's just he's you know, he's not a Bill Clinton. He ain't out there trying to, like, tell everybody what he thinks all the time. He just wants to paint his pictures. But he seems to be rising to the occasion of sort of the the. Trumpian threat to not only the country, but to his own party. And I appreciate that, George W. Bush. Continuing our former president's edition here, I appreciate that Jimmy Carter is basically telling the world, be happy to go to North Korea and try to help this mess out. Apparently, he and H.R. McMaster are friends, and he has had a conversation with him about this that didn't really go anywhere. And look, I don't know if this is a good idea. I don't know if he's the right person. I don't know if this is the approach we should be taking. But I really appreciate Jimmy Carter's kind of steadfast, lifelong commitment to trying to make the world more peaceful. 
and his willingness at advanced age after well-publicized health problems saying, I will go to this very dangerous part of the world if I can be helpful. I think that is the definition of servant leadership and I appreciate it. Oh, Jimmy Carter is 3000% the definition of servant leadership. And I think since we're doing this former president thing, also the best example of how to be a former president, like, you know, he doesn't make any money from serving on boards. The only money he makes is from publishing his books. Did you know that about Jimmy Carter? I love that about Jimmy Carter. I love him. He's not a, listen, in full, in fairness, he had, he had a tough, he had a tough sitch. He did have a tough sitch. He wasn't the greatest president, but he's rocking being a former president. I'm just say that right now. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pantsy. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week. So in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and June has you covered. We've talked about Olive and June's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are gonna last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and June also has press-ons if you want. What I love though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsuit for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. So we got some feedback on our conversation about Maya and V. Alex editorial. Just a little bit. 
Okay, here's the thing I want to say. First of all, I had not read any of the backlash. I was not, a, I mean, when I read the editorial, I knew people were going to get mad about the like modesty part. I had no idea that the entire internet was going to decide that Maya Bialik was saying people could protect themselves from sexual assault by what they were, which I did not read. I did not interpret. I know other people did. I think that's a little unfair, not giving her the benefit of the doubt. She's since come out and apologized very sincerely, said that's not what she was saying. But I feel terrible because I did not understand that that's how so many people were interpreting it. So when I came on, it was like, this is amazing. Everybody was like, what the hell, Sarah? Which was probably well-deserved. I think that a learning experience for me in all of this is that because we have this sense of relationship with our listeners, sometimes you and I will pick up conversations in what should be the middle Mm. of those conversations. And I think that just as you went to my embryolics piece with with known facts about her in mind, you know, assuming she is a feminist, she would never victim blame. Right. She would never say that you can protect yourself from rape. We kind of came to our conversation without stating no one is responsible for being harassed or being raped or violated in any way. It is never a woman's fault or a man's fault if that happens to him. It is the sole responsibility of the perpetrator. And I think we just left many things unsaid because we assumed that that's where we were all starting. And I think that what is really coming to the forefront right now, as more allegations come out against Harvey Weinstein, I'm saying allegations, I believe every one of them, mm. the the information that we've learned over the weekend about Bill O'Reilly, it is clear that culturally we are raw and emotional and we aren't all starting in the same place. And we can't say enough that it is not the fault of women who this happens to, and that it is not the fault of any victim, that while rape culture and beauty culture and consumerism may all be related in ways that are interesting to take apart and think about, that doesn't negate any of those sentences that I think we just assumed as a baseline. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, and here's two things. What really helped me is Jessica uh, had a emailed us and was really good. And it pushed me to finally um, put into words what I was trying to say, but that I couldn't quite capture what I was trying to get at, which is, and I posted this on Facebook and all our places, but it, it, I finally realized the two words I'm trying to distinguish is sexualization versus sexuality. Like I think for definitely when I was growing up and for the most part, even still today, what our culture presents is sexualization as a path to empowerment. Like, don't throw rocks at me, but I think a lot of what was going on in, like, Sex in the City, for example, which I watched every episode, like, five times, but it's, like, this 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 sexualization as the path to empowerment, which is very different to me than sexuality. Sexuality is what it is. It's your personal sexuality, which you can absolutely publicly express and be empowered by. But I think sexualization is presenting your body as a product for someone else. And I think we definitely tell men that's that women's sexual sexualization of women and even really sexuality to a certain point is a product to be consumed for them. And so like, that's what I was trying to get at. Like, I hate that. And I hate the way that we, that the way that sort of consumer culture in particular presents that as a path of empowerment. Um, and I do think those industries are complicit, but here's something else interesting that I thought about too, when we were talking about all this and my friend, um, baby doll Kennedy, who's an AME minister commented, why don't we look at, you know, when, when a shooting happens, a police shooting, and there's this conversation um, among the African-American and black community, black, brown people generally that says, this is what we have to tell our kids. We have to tell our kids to act this way and do this thing. How come nobody turns to them and goes, that's victim blaming? She made that point on Facebook. And I think that's a really good point. I don't know why we have this interplay of this is how I protect. This is how I try to protect myself with women and sexual assault turns into victim blaming when when you see that in other contexts, it doesn't. What do you think about that? Yeah, I thought that was a really insightful comment on Facebook. And I think that some of that is just the pervasive racism that we're all steeped in. And I think that there are threads running through the big messy dialogue that's happening right now of how white feminists are in a different place than Mm -hmm. a lot of other people. And 
it's hard to talk about that, right? It's hard to find the right language because I don't at all think that anyone should have to worry about being harassed and abused and brutalized the way that so many women are being harassed and abused and brutalized every single day. I think the stories coming out that are being reported are overwhelming. What I find personally more overwhelming are the private conversations that are occurring. Mm -hmm. The women who maybe don't want to share on social media, but who will share in real life. And hearing those stories affects me more deeply than anything coming out. Although I do think it's powerful when women share on social media and I don't want to take anything away from that. But this conversation is complex and it's hard. And I think that it continues to show that as white people, we often have less tolerance for any kind of assessment of our own behaviors Mm -hmm. than non-white people because of the way that our culture exists today. And I don't know how to say that without sounding like I'm victim blaming because I absolutely do not mean that in my heart. And I will also teach my daughters to do some things to protect themselves that could lead someone to believe that I am victim blaming. Well, I I, I just think that, you know, I guess what I would say is we have to strive absolutely to improve our rape culture. I hope that's assumed. At the same time, we have to deal with the reality that when you exit your house and bump into other human beings, we will never exist in a world without physical violence or sexual violence of any kind. Right. I mean, I think surely we can all agree on that without feeling like we're abdicating any responsibility and improving our rape culture. And so it's complicated. We got to walk both places. We got to strive for what we want to be and acknowledge what we are. And, you know. I think that the improvement in the conversation is to have it with both little girls and little boys and to talk to little boys about um, consent and alcohol and all these things that create this these toxic situations and not just put I mean, I think the improvement is to not say don't do anything to protect yourself, but not to put the entire load of burden and responsibility on women to protect themselves. I mean, I think that's that's how the conversation and I think that conversation has improved. It's definitely different from when I was growing up. When I was growing up, it was all on you, girl. Yeah, I think that the next step is that men have to show up for this mm-hmm. and men have to show up in ways that are both very adamant about taking ownership for the role that misogyny has in all of this. And that are respectful of the fact that they are not the experts in these experiences. And right. I think that's hard. It's hard. And I because think that's why her essay pissed people off because it felt like she was, it was all about a conversation with women. And I, you know, right. and I get that. I get that. And, and it's difficult to watch. I mean, I guess this is the, probably the white feminist in me. It's difficult to watch the men who do speak out about this receive such praise for it. Um, when it is still so much easier for them than for women who have been abused. But I think that that's the work of our generation. And I think bringing more men to the table to take responsibility and and less in the public sphere and more in the private sphere mm-hmm. to be the people who protect women in the workplace or who speak up or who validate what a woman speaks up about Um to show up for conversations about these issues in a really present way to understand that when their buddy who they've loved forever gets fired because of something like this, that was the right thing to happen. And they should not be cold and insensitive to the people who spoke out about Mm -hmm. what the buddy did. Yeah. Those are the really hard lessons. I think that's a piece of Gretchen Carlson's book that is really well done and something that I want to spend a lot of time talking about with her when we get to have our discussion with her, because I think she does a good job of saying, Hollywood aside, in everyday Americans' lives doing unglamorous jobs, the work of the nation that is necessary, the price of talking about this is so taxing for people who are never going to get $32 million settlements. Right. 
Well, and, and this is a good transition to a piece of feedback we wanted to share. So we got an incredibly powerful message from a man named Keith who t- confessed to us that he had committed sexual assault and his journey of coming to realize that, that we wanted to share. So we understand that this could be triggering for some listeners and feel free to tune it out. We're not trying to... um obviously condone what he did and he isn't either, but we feel like in this conversation about men's responsibility, his voice is um, really important. So he said, your conversation about rape and sexual assault victims and perpetrators the last few weeks led me to write down my thoughts in this email. First, victims of sexual assault endure more agony and suffering than being accused of sexual assault, rightly or wrongly. Nonetheless, I want to share my story as a man who committed assault and how I dealt with that. There is no way to replace or supplant the story of victims. Rather, I hope conversations like yours can encourage others who committed sexual assault to own their own actions and change their behavior rather than deny and blame the victim. As you alluded to, not only does toxic masculinity contribute to the problem in the first place, since men take, it also encourages men to never apologize or admit a mistake. The latter exasperates the prior. Men and any perpetrator need to own their actions to reduce the sexual assaults from happening. To me, this starts with an honest, open, self-reflective conversation about sex consent and owns one behavior. So here's my story. As a freshman in college, I committed sexual assault. I had a sexual interactions with a woman, did not ask, and eventually found out that she didn't want the interaction. The rest of the details that we commonly use to victim blame do not matter. It took hearing a friend's story to appreciate that just because someone doesn't say no doesn't mean yes. As the similarities between my friend's description and my scenario started to register over the following days, weeks, and months, I realized it doesn't matter she didn't say no. It doesn't matter if you were already consensually naked. It doesn't matter. It matters that I acted without permission. At this point, one has two options. One can deny saying that isn't rape, sexual assault to resolve your cognitive dissonance by changing your definition of assault, or one can change their behavior to ensure it doesn't ever happen again. In our culture, because rape assault is understandably considered an irredeemable act, most people choose to deny their actions or explain why their situation is an assault or rape. As far as I can tell, few change their behavior because it requires admitting fault. I was fortunate to go to a small liberal arts school that openly discussed sexual assault and ways to prevent it. But what sexual assault meant in the real world took a long time to register. Our society tells us men have sex and a woman who flirts wants sex. For following three years, I worked as an RA. In this role, several female residents confided similar experience to me. I did my best to be supportive and receptive and obviously never shared with them this with them. Definitely not the time or place to be selfish. Nonetheless, afterwards, I would hate myself more and more. The best guy I could do is take accountability and be sure other women weren't hurt by my actions. As an RA, I worked with long with the local sexual assault recovery program and made RA programming to increase awareness from consent, including things like sober, verbal, hell yes, awareness campaign. I was young, dumb, dense, and filled with hormones. I screwed up incredibly, and if a victim doesn't forgive a perpetrator, I certainly don't blame them. While certainly not a ladies' man, I've had other consenting partners through my 20s and learned how to ask and make sure it doesn't happen again. It didn't happen overnight, but over time, long-term and short-term, I learned how to act like a human rather than like a man. Hopefully, I'm not irredeemable. The way to solve the problem isn't to fall into the trap where the way white, cis, straight, gender men think act in the world is the default correct way. No, particularly in sexual interactions, the only threshold that matters is, are all parties involved in consenting adults? So in the spirit of open, honest, and self-reflective conversation, here are a few journal lessons I wish I learned when I was younger. If If we have these open but difficult conversations, hopefully men take more active role in stopping the problem. It's worth repeating being the victim of sexual assault is worse than being accused, rightly or wrongly, of sexual assault. If you're afraid to ask, you shouldn't have, be having sex with that person. It's natural to be nervous. That's different than being afraid to ask. Yes, rejection sucks. Assault, rape sucks more. Ask early and often. Check in with even with a simple you good as you start being intimate. Probably 80 to 90% of women say no whenever asked that before. I'm 29 now and generally date women my age. That's absurd and indicates we have a long way to go. Often there will be a, I wish more people did that, which was every obvious implication you think it does. Don't perpetuate the problem by ignoring it. I don't want to be an explicit in this email, but ask in fun and creative ways. Adjectives are good. Some people argue you'll ruin the mood if you, as they exaggerate, pull out a contract. Not at all true. Use fun words. Something as simple as, is there something you want? We'll tell you if she's interested. Don't coerce. And if that's not a clear yes, hell yeah, then don't go further, assuming they're good at the current level of intimacy. When you make it clear, you generally care about her wants. She's more likely to trust you so you can have consensual fun. And if not, that's perfectly okay too. If your manhood requires you immediately have sex with that person, then you have to find other ways to improve self 
self-esteem. Seriously, if it's that fragile, your manhood wasn't very strong to start. If a girl says you don't have to ask or it gets awkward, your fear from above, just say, I'd rather ask and have the answer be yes than not ask and have the answer be no. I'll never met anyone who said, well, I was interested, but now that you expected my choice, body, and autonomy, I'm not interested anymore. Use it to start a conversation about likes and dislikes, and if you continue to see the person, building that trust early can lead to fun mutual interest. As a cis straight man, I used her and him pronouns, but obviously this applies to other instances too. The threshold that matters is all our parties are all parties consenting adults. I probably missed points as this was way difficult email to write, and I tried to limit too much family. But again, being the victim is worse than being the accused. I hope none of this is too graphic or in any way suggests sexual assault is okay. I did my best to be straightforward, and I hope it doesn't come off braggadocio, self-interested, or mentalizing assault in any way. Rather, because the conversation around assault is often black and white, few change their behavior because it means in many are irredeemable. It's a difficult line to walk between humanizing a perpetrator and making sure it's clear and assault is a serious problem. I wanted to share my perspective and encourage others to own their actions. Hopefully, this can encourage young men and all people to build healthy sexual relationships, whatever that is, to the consenting adults to, involved. Again, if you hate this or don't want anything to respond to the perpetrator, I expect that and apologize if it caused more harm than good. Thank you for your show and insights from today's tumultuous sociopolitical world. I was so grateful for that email. You could tell I sort of teared up reading it. Me too. And I think that there is so much power in someone in Keith's situation sharing his learnings. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's a perfect note to end this segment on. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible. And skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin. I take a probiotic. And Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered shower head purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code PANTSUIT at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15.
So, Beth, what's on your mind outside politics? A bunch of things. I have met my Eustachian tube this week. I liked it better before I knew I had it. Wait, what? Yes, I have an acutely dysfunctional Eustachian tube, the tube Wait, that connects your, your ear to ear? your throat. Okay, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. got it. Mm-hmm. It's not great to have that problem when you do podcasting. <laughs> um, but anyway, so I have... I hate going to the doctor. I hate taking prescriptions, but I have been dealing with that in a righteous way, and I'm ready to. My ear, nose, and throat does not function well either. I feel like it's it's got a couple problems I will get into because they're gross, but they're just generally it's not it's not its best self. Its best self is not good enough. I'm sorry, my ear, nose, and throat system, but it's just true. So that's been a larger part of my life than I wish that it had been. I've also been working on my coaching business, which will launch really soon. I'm very excited about it. But what I wanted to talk the most about today is your conversation with Ann Bogle on personality types. You can't talk about personality types and not have me chime in on this. <laughs> so the part that really interested me was when you and Ann were talking about Gail and Oprah and the whole Amy and Tina and Amy and Tina. I feel like they're, they're very good. Yeah. That whole sense of, well, the introvert tends to be the person who is less in it with a stranger in those interactions. And what it made me think about is how we've joked a lot about how you're you're definitely the E of our pair and I'm mm-hmm. the I. But I will go the distance with an Uber driver or a yeah. restaurant server or anybody else in one of those kind of stranger interactions. And I just wondered what you thought about that. Yeah, I'm not in it. I don't want to talk to you. That's not true. It just, uh, I'm just inconsistent. Like I have to be in the right space, which I feel is probably also true of Tina and Oprah, which is I just, if I, I'm not rude, am I? I just don't want to, you're just way nicer, but I'm not rude rude at all. No, No, I'm not rude at all. You're just not there for it. I'm not there for it. I, cause I have a lot going on in my head. Like if it's like first thing in the morning, I'm re- I'm ready, and maybe that's the in- maybe that is introverted like because if I have energy to expend, or I'm in like a if I'm like what oh I, here's what it is okay. I've been thinking a lot about what Anne said about is the real world out or is the real world in, and I really can't. It just depends on how stressed I am. So if I'm in a space where I feel like the out there is the real world, then I'm I'm with it. I'm in it with like a Uber driver. You that one Uber driver, I was ready to like, hold, I was ready to get out and sing God Bless America with that guy. But if I'm in an introverted, like if the inner world is in my head right now, I need you to stop talking to me. So I guess maybe that's what it is. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I the way that I make sense of this for myself is that I'm a two on the Enneagram. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. the the platinum rule, that sense of you treat others in the way that they'd like to be treated mm-hmm. is like my natural hardwiring. Mm-hmm. And so if somebody wants to have that conversation, I feel like, well, here I am to be of service for you. You know, oh my gosh. <laughs> what no, else no, mean? no. I'm a one with a two wing, which means like. I really want to, I want to do what I want to do to serve you, but really I'm going to need to perfect it and control it myself. So I want to, you know, so I'm defining what's a service to you. <laughs> Let me be your resource Sherpa is what I'm saying. Right. And I will d- pick what you need. I, I'm i the expert on what you need, not you. That's come, uh, that's caused problems in my life before. But man, sometimes like you're so much nicer, but like we, we had a waitress recently where I was so close to being like, okay, thank you. But I was going to let you, I, I just got out my phone and let Beth handle it, which is not nice probably to you, or the waitress, <laughs> but you know exactly what I'm talking about. I do. I do. Well, what have you been thinking about besides politics? Oh, you know what I'm thinking about? I'm moving. I'm moving. House, let me just, yes. Well, it's, I had to do an open house and this is probably reflective of my personality. It is against everything, every cell in my body to just start sticking things out of the way for a showing. I hate it. It's inefficient. I'm just going to have to drag it out, at, back out again. I'm not creating a better system. I'm just shoving the dirty dishcloths under the sink because somebody's going to come look at me. I hate it so much. It's creating stress in my marriage. And I just, I can't, I just can't. But like the, you have to keep the freaking furniture in it because you sell it better if it's got furniture in it. So says everyone. It's just, if you have systems for showings that you have out there, listeners. I also have another call out. If we have any listeners that are travel agents, uh, give us a me, drop us an email or a message. Thanks. 
<laughs> well, we appreciate you listening and all of the participation from our community. One person sent this really kind note saying that the way we, ha- we have these conversations is cause for optimism. And I thought, you know, I think you would feel so much more optimistic if you could sit in our shoes sometimes and realize that oh there gosh. are so many causes for optimism out there. Yep. So many causes for optimism. This and they all just happen to amazing. listen to Painting Politics. <laughs> Yeah, and we just need to keep building that community to amplify those voices because there are so many reasons to be optimistic. So thank you for joining us. We'll be back with you on Friday for another episode. Also on Friday, we will be talking with Gretchen Carlson in person. We cannot wait for that. And we'll share it with you the next week. So until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Thank you so much to our executive producers, Nicholas, Chad, Tracy, Leslie, Sabrina, and George. You can join us on social media, Instagram and Facebook at Paintsuit Politics and on Twitter at Paintsuit Politic, no S. And if you'd like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com or reviews are always helpful and you can leave one through the Apple Podcast app. Thank you to Dante Lima, the composer of our Paintsuit Politics theme music. <laughs>